All right. Well, let's maybe just start. I think thanks for showing up, everyone. Um, we're, well, with, with a career of more than 25 years in uh, electronic music production and music making, it's impossible to introduce uh, this gentleman next to me in a few sentences. So uh, I, we, we will get to a lot of things that he has done. But please welcome uh, Jan Werner. Well, um, I, th I think it would be best if we just give a, a, a quick insight in what you brought and mm -hmm. we just take it from there, maybe. Yeah, I prepared a, I prepared a video for you which says more than a thousand words. Um, there's actually two videos. One is um, mainly my work with, with my group, Mouse and Mars, which I run with um, Andy Toma. Um, with whom I've been working since yeah a long time, about 25 years now. The group, we started like 22 years ago, but we've been working together before that. At some point we had a, a band name, so we always date the, the birth of the group back to when we found the name for what we were doing. Um, so this first video shows a bit of what we're doing in Mars to Mars, and it starts with a little tour trailer that we did for um, an album which we released in 2012 after a couple of years of not really doing Mouse and Mars records, still being active, touring and producing, we kind of got back into the label um, world, realizing that a lot of things had changed in these kind of five years, um, or yeah, it was actually more than five years, of not really producing a proper studio record. So the labels that we had been working with until 2004, 2005, were more or less like... Uh, the situation had changed. We'd always split up territories, so we had a label for UK, Europe, one for Japan, one for America, and none of the people we had been working with wanted to do that anymore. They said, we want you for the whole world, because these days everything's digital, so there's no more territories. <coughs> and so it was, it was a lot of thinking of how we would run it, and then we decided we wanted we wanted to be closer to our new home base, Berlin. We'd been in Düsseldorf with a studio before. I'd been living in Cologne. Our label, Sonic, um, the record shop, Our Musik, that we're very close with. All that is still in Cologne. Um, I've been traveling a lot then for a while and then settled in Berlin. Then Andy came to Berlin. So when everything was in Berlin, our booking agency, the studio, which is at Funkhaus, very close to where your production studios are, um, so when all these things were in Berlin, um, we connected with a label called Monkey Town, which is also based here. It's run by this group, Mode Selector, and it seemed like a very good idea to start working with them. So 2012, we kind of got back into the studio record production loop with an album called Parastrophics. And this was a little tour trailer that we did for the tour that came with this album, Parastrophics. So I start this video with um, a little tour trailer. So what you see is Andy Toma on the left, Dodo and Kishi on drums in the middle, and Jan Stevana on the right.
so we're running very quickly through all this. Um, this is <laughs> this is so so. Once we were back on like the road and back in the label world, um, all these other projects that we were doing caught up, and this is one that we're doing with. We still do this um, these days um, with Tyone Braxton. He had been in this group Battles, um, and he works as a solo artist since a couple of years. And for this special project, we reworked um, Terry Riley's In C. Terry Riley is a very important American composer you might have heard of. If not, you should really check out his, his works. Um, he started composing in the 60s. He's um, still alive. And his more or less most famous piece is called INC. It's based on 53 patterns that all circle around the note C. And these patterns are rhythmically and melodically quite simple. But then the way they are arranged is, uh, makes a, a quite complex composition. And so we reinterpreted this piece, including a few robot drums that um, a good friend of ours uh, invented. So there's a, a little um, sketch about the rehearsal and concert we did at Volksbühne Berlin. So this is from the Volksbühne. So this is Funkhaus, this is our studio. Um, yeah, those of you who've been to Funkhaus, I assume all of you have been there already. You, you get the sense, you get the vibe. You already smell the smell of Funkhaus. <laughs> so in one, in one of these rooms, in one of these endless corridors, there's all this. von Musik ist es ja total wichtig, dass bestimmte Elemente ein bisschen mehr hinten sind, also sozusagen vielleicht auch verschleiert sind, also das kann man am einfachsten durch einfach einen Halleffekt oder so erzielen. Okay, this is uh, Studio Secrets. Um, I tell you this now, you've never heard about this before. If you put reverb on something, it seems to be more distant. This is um, for a feature for electronic beats, so it was a, it's kind of basic, but um, it's just an excerpt. I can, I can Skip it, let's see how long this lasts, I don't know. Und, und dadurch kommen andere Elemente eben mehr nach vorne. Eben immer wieder diese Tiefen, diese Bilder oder mm. Räume zu erzeugen, wo du wirklich beim Hören plötzlich denkst, boah, das geht ja auf, unendlich auf fast. Und im nächsten Moment ist es plötzlich wieder boah, total nah. Und dann eben auch manchmal gleichzeitig, dass man so wie beim Gucken hast das Gefühl, du musst die ganze Zeit die Linse nachziehen. Was ist jetzt eigentlich vorne oder hinten? Was ist die Melodie? Was ist irgendwie der, der Rhythmus? 
was ist irgendwie der Krach und äh, was ist das Angenehme und so. Und das versuchen wir irgendwie immer wieder so gegeneinander zu stellen. This is um, an app that we've been developing. Actually, since uh, this took a long time. It's a very simple app. It doesn't do very much, but it was intensely um, exhausting to, <laughs> to produce it. And since today, it's um, a very special day. This is officially on our label, Mom Instruments, because everything was such a construction zone and such a hassle. We used um, the company name, Thoma Werner GBR, to release this app and then the next app that we were supposed to release, the programmer didn't really like to release this app on the Thomas Werner GBR instead of Mom Instruments, which would have been much more sexy. So then he did it under his name, which was um, okay, it's cool. I mean, he's, it was his baby, this, the second app, but, um, but he would have done it on Mom Instruments. So our, our idea was to really start a label and this was the first app. It was originally a PD patch um, and we had someone coded for iOS and add a few other features. It's basically just a sound manipulation, real-time effect with a little sampler inside. And it's a very noisy and very hard to control thing, but uh, we really like it. It's kind of a noise dub machine and we use it live and we use it um, in the studio and it has a very unique sound because it kind of relates to this series of MXR um, effects that were invented in the 80s, which had a very intense regeneration kind of feedback um, function that, that we've always been very fond of and we wanted to really make, like, really exploit that to full extent. So we invented this thing called RetchUp. So um, this is a little introduction to what RetchUp's doing. This is an orchestra piece that we've been working on since 2011 and it finally premiered, can't remember. No, actually we've been working on this since much longer, I think actually premiered in 2011. Um, so this was a very complex thing. It was an idea that we developed with the conductor André de Ridder. He's, um, he's running the Stargaze Ensemble. Some of you might have seen posters of them in town. It's, a, it's an international ensemble of young composers and uh, musicians and they team up with bands and make it possible for certain bands to have like lavish arrangements of their music or work on an original new piece. André has been very prolific in the real like orchestral world, the serious world of opera and classical repertoire but he has always been a fan of pop music. He worked with Gorillaz, he did this, um, um, what's it, Emmy, Grammy, Lemmy? I should be called Lemmy. Uh, <laughs> the, the Grammy Awards? Yeah, for music, what's, 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 what's the thing for Grammy music? Is also music? The Grammy is for music? music, yeah. Yeah, okay, I think Lemmy would be better. Anyway, he, yeah, he, like this Gorillaz thing he did, that was, that was a uh, uh, Grammy nominated 
piece. Um, he's very open-minded. He's, he's amazing. He's very patient, but also very powerful. And um, we met him through a project that Andy was involved with about the musician Moondog, which is another name you should really check out and do research on. Besides Terry Riley, Moondog is like one of these um, great American composers with their own mind, inventing their own instruments and being a to like totally, how do you call those guys, mavericks <laughs> in their field. Um, so Andy um, recorded a Moondog album and then after Moondog died, they did a big um, festival around Moondog at the Barbican. So Andy was supposed to reinterpret this album that he had produced of Moondog and they teamed him up with Andre. They became good friends. Um, we got to know Andre, pitched this idea to him or like talked about this idea of having an orchestra piece that would kind of work as a, a full-on mouse-to-mouse composition. But each player would, um, would, would have the function of being a sound and, and um, really translate our, our idea of sounds, how they can mutate and how they can shift and how they can develop um, and, 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 and rework that as a human being. And, um, it, it, don't want to sound pretentious, but it was really a very uncommon idea in 2011. It's only, I know it's only five years ago, but um, a band like us wanting to work with an orchestra was, was a very, it, it was a difficult idea because working with an orchestra burns an awful lot of money. Um, each musician costs a lot of money. Every rehearsal costs a lot of money. To rent a space like this costs a lot of money. And then after you've done all that, where would you perform the piece? So, um, so it was, it, was, it was quite a thing that we wanted to do. And eventually, um, the Philharmonie Köln, like the Cologne Philharmonic um, venue, I was celebrating its 25th birthday. And they gave, gave us a commission. So um, the money that they gave us made it possible to work with this prolific ensemble, Musikfabrik from Cologne. And yeah, developed this piece that we call Peanomnion. It's a 45, 50-minute continuous piece with different sections and this shows a bit of the rehearsal of the piece. I'm, I'm not recording, I'm using Andre as a medium, okay so threatening him, this is not a recording device, it's actually a thing to shave your legs, and I threatened Andre if he would conduct it wrong, I would shave him. So, uh, Irokesen, uh, uh, what's this thing? The, the mohawk. Yeah, mohawk, exactly. Ja, bitte. 
ist ja Krach. Und wir hören da die unglaublichen Dinge. Und wenn man sich hier umschaut, was, was, man, was der Mensch alles zusammenfährt und, und hinstellt und wo der überall drauf rumschraubt und schabt, um sowas wie Musik zu erzeugen, wo jetzt vielleicht irgendjemand aus einer anderen Galaxie sagen würde, es ist ein unglaublicher Krach her, herrscht auf dieser Erde, weil diese Erdenbewohner konstant an irgendwas schrauben und schaben. Ja? Und wir würden dann sagen, das ist aber doch Musik und so. Ne? Okay, so this is the mouse and mouse section. Was that, that last piece that we saw, was that um, sort of um, existing mouse and mouse pieces that were sort of reinterpreted by the orchestra, or did you write the pieces specifically for the orchestra? Second one. Yeah, it was really specifically made for the orchestra, which was actually very, very complicated. I think it would have been much easier to reinterpret existing pieces, like have a, um, how do you call that actually in English? Um, yeah, just someone who basically arranges, rearranges your music. Mm -hmm. It's very common these days to do this. A lot of people are actually able to do it. Um, it's still expensive, but it's more effective. What we did is was a constant process of thinking about something in the studio, then trying it out with musicians, different musicians then kind of re-editing it in the studio again, then having it transcribed into notes, having a corrector going through the notes, presenting it at the rehearsal to the orchestra, um, see how it sounds, how they play it. This is why I recorded things to kind of re-digest it or cut it up, have it rearranged again. Being it was a constant back and forth of translation and trying out and finding the right mood and the right tempo. Um, and it took us Four, it took us four performances to get the piece right. Oh. The first performance was uh, Philharmonie Köln, the second one was Barbican London, the third one was, can't remember, and the fourth one was at uh, the How, when we celebrate the 21st anniversary of the, of the group. We had two days at How 1 and How 2 in Berlin, and we made the How 1 and How 2 into the How 21, and so this was one part of the, of the program of the How 21, and, and it worked really well. So we were there, that was it. Like. And that was the first time that you worked with an, with an orchestra? We, we've always had acoustic instruments, but an orchestra of 26 musicians was the first time ever. Mm. Yeah. What, what would you make different now? Um, in, 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 working with an orchestra mm. again? Um, <laughs> I, I guess it would always be different. I mean, there's like, the experience, but then there's also the things you learn and you don't, you understand now and you don't want to repeat. And then there are the things you understand and you think they're great and they work really well and you want to explore them further. Mm. It's a really hard to answer question. I think some things would probably sound quite similar and other things would be totally different. I've also been working on a piece with the group Kaleidoscope, mm -hmm. which we might see a snippet of in the other video that I prepared, which is more like my solo work or like things I do without Andy, um, and they are, f I think those 13 or 16 string musicians, 
that was a totally different process. The P sounds different. It's more concentrated, more focused on string sounds and certain resonances. Um, but still, that piece could also have been a part of like a mouse mass thing, or you know, it's it's kind of it's very hard to answer. Like the whole process that we usually have is we don't really see the whole. We see a specific part of something that we are really interested in. We zoom into that, focus on that, kind of zoom it up until it becomes bigger, and then eventually kind of pops up and something else comes out of that. So we might get back to the original and take the thing that it led to as an extra, as, a, as maybe a, a B part or mm -hmm. song number two or something. But it might also happen that we kind of get rid of the first thing. And so mostly all the projects that I'm involved with, they kind of, they kind of link together somehow in, in, in weird ways. So it's really hard to say what is the master plan, what do we really try to achieve. I think all we want to do is just being able to continue just getting into the next thing. While you're already on working on one thing, you, you already kind of initiate the next thing. I think this is the So the process do. when you work, is it more or less that process that you described of zooming in and getting, getting lost in something and then developing something? Or is there sometimes a, a concept beforehand or a bigger thought already or an idea that you work towards to in a way? Um, I think we're all like very limited. Um, every human being is, that's the, the great advantage and disadvantage, we are so limited. So whatever we try to do, the end of the day, it's, it's, if, you, if you're really honest with what you do, you end up doing your thing. And you try to escape it and you try to do all kinds of things, collaborations, you try new instruments, you even try painting next to making music, next to writing and then you open up a bakery. At the end of the day, you realize I'm, what I'm really into is like the certain taste that I want to have in everything at the end of the day, which makes me feel the world in a certain way, or that kind of translates to other people in a certain way. I don't say that this in itself isn't complex, but if you're very honest, you have to see your limitations and you can work really hard on that and try loads of things, but if you stay honest, like really make the next step according to what you, when, when you feel it's right to make that step, make a decision when you feel it's right to make the decision, then you see how limited you are, and then you understand that you can do loads of different things. Um, at the end of the day, they all kind of link together. So having a master plan, I don't think is a very good idea. Okay. Um, you, because you have it anyway, you know. You, you're on a, on a road. <laughs> So, so let me summarize, if, if you're ever getting bothered by your limitations, you change the focus to what, what is possible and, and you are satisfied with that? Or is there, is there ever a moment where you're sort of annoyed by those limitations? Yeah, constantly. And, and, that, and then how do you work around that? Um, I think the whole idea of making art or whatever you call it, or being creative, you know, or trying to express yourself in a way. That is the idea behind it, to overcome these limits. This is it. This is the whole act of it. And what you produce while you do that, you might call it art or it might be inventive. Um, it can also be annoying. It can be notorious, you know, or like kids sometimes. You, you might think, man, that they're so annoying but they try to get something out, they try to overcome something, like find the next step somehow. And I think it's a very, um, yeah, it's a very normal 
human urge, you know. Mm. And we shouldn't make such a big fuss about it. You know? I think this whole idea of creativity or um, an idea or like being an artist, all that kind of stuff, I don't think it's, it's, it's a privilege when you're able to do that because you obviously have the time and the, 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 the possibility to do it. You're not, you're not involved with like just getting something to eat to survive or escaping a, a situation of crisis that just like drags you out of your, your mental rearm. But when you have the, the, the possibility to do that, I think that's what, what, what we're all striving for, more or less, you know. Kind of, kind of, in a way, get rid of ourselves. Create something, like if you deal with plants in the garden, or as I said, if you have a bakery, or you do bird watching, or you repair a car, it's all that, you know. And yeah, and I think this is what, what, what kind of, I'm sometimes, what I'm really sometimes annoyed by is, that there's so many possibilities and that I'm getting from one thing into the next one. Then you deal with software, then the software doesn't work, you need the update and you, you do, it's not compatible with your operating system. And then um, you listen to some new piece of music from whatever, a friend, and you think, oh my God, this is this smashing everything I'm doing into pieces. You know, This is so cool, well, this, this is so good. What are you doing? And you, this is, all this is distracting me and um, that, that's really the annoying bit. Has this changed over the years, or has it always been like that? Has always been like that, I think. Yeah. So there's not actually really there's no 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 master plan. Um, what we definitely try to do is not um, determine ourselves, um, like not do it. Sessnes freiwillig. Out of voluntarily. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, that's 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 what we what we're definitely what we've always been avoiding. So, like in the early days of Mouse and Mars, it was it was really hard for journalists to pin down what we were doing, and they had to do it somehow. They had to explain to their audience like there's this group, and they do this and this and this. And when we realized that these terms that they come up with might really stick to you for a while, we came up with like inventing our own terms. So when journalists came to us and said like, what what is it actually you're doing? We heard. Um, you come from crowd rock and then you include like dub elements to it, but there's also a certain level of electroacoustic experimentation and you're coming from an academic background, right? But you also like in the DIY thing and you think like, this is like, yeah, and then we said, yeah, we're, because it's all what we're doing is doom grind. And they said like, ah, well, thank you so much. And then they write this down. <laughs> and of course we had a lot of fun doing that. So we had a real routine, like nearly, trying every interview, trying to come up with a different thing, because it was really, um, it became like a sport you know, mm -hmm. between Andy and me, so we invented like, actually some, sometimes uh, really stuck to it, like we in crowd, we, we, one, one day we came out, it's, it's basically crowd dub, it's a big thing in Germany these days, so the British guy like crowd dub, and then we figured, like we realized there was like, there was a crowd dub compilation at some point, and like oh, people really? referring to, yeah, oh, wow. crowd dub, you know, like it goes out there, it's like what, mm. like a music piece or something, you have an idea or whatever, there's a melody, it, it just goes its own way in the world, it's just the way, we all eat each other's air, <laughs> it's normal. Um, and we didn't invent the word crowd, and we didn't invent the word dub. We just like said it very fast, and it became one word. And you can do, yeah, you can do these things and um, try to gain some freedom by staying obscure, like diffusing things a bit. Actually, the, the other thing was we never wanted to be obscure in a sense that we were wearing masks or stayed in the shadow or 
It was a very common thing in the 90s when you were part of this IDM thing of bedroom producers. Like you could, like in the 90s, it, it, it was for the first time ever possible to make a really good sounding production basically in your living room, in your home. Um, it was very difficult to do that before. You, would al you could always tell this was like done on a, on a tape recorder or this was like done with cheap equipment and this was done in a good studio. But suddenly the technology was, was able to provide you with like a really hardcore sound. I mean really something that sounded good even in the club. You would produce something at home, a jungle track, and just put it on a DAT and then a DJ would just throw it in, in, in his set and it would just sound amazing. So that gave a lot of confidence to a lot of producers and it also made it clear that if you didn't want to show yourself, you didn't have to. So you could obscure yourself and whatever, like never give an interview or change your name every week and these kind of things. But we figured that this wouldn't really be true to how we see things. So we, we always wanted to be face to face with what we're doing or who, like people who have questions or our audience. Or, but we didn't put our faces onto record covers. This is something that we didn't do. The only time we had phases on a record cover was 2013 for an EP called Spismodia. And we figured that this band Hall and Oates, which we really like, um, looked quite like Andy and me. So we basically took their picture. They were a little older than us, where we thought we'd just pretend we're older than we are and then take this Hall and Oates image and blur it a little bit so people think it's Andy and me. It was the only time we had. Our faces on a cover. All right. Should, should we listen to some of your solo work, maybe? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Ah, so, no, it stays here, of course. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit more shy with my solo work. I tried to get it out of the frame. Yeah. This is the piece I just talked about, um, which I wrote with Kaleidoscope. I, I wrote for them, but they also worked really intensely on on the piece itself. So Kaleidoscope, Solisten Ensemble, Kaleidoscope is how they call themselves, is a group of like um, very skilled talents who each of them could be a solo player, but they work together as an ensemble without conductor. So every performance they do is basically without um, a main person conducting what they do. And they asked me to write a piece for them. Um, and it's an electronic piece that deals with the resonances and sawtooth um, character of strings. And so it's a mix of electronics and, and strings. It's called Lumio. And this video is from a performance we did at Radial System in Berlin. I uh, can't remember when. I probably says in the title. So that was a, a bit of Lumio. Then this is another project um, called Black Manual. This, um, yeah, this came together when I saw a Candomblé performance, which is um, a cult or religion from, from Brazil that's very close to voodoo. Um, 
It's based on very rhythmic, very intense music um, that is played during a ritual where people basically transform, um, lose themselves and connect with their orisha. It's, it's, it's just kind of a special god. It's only for this person. And this transformation, when I saw this performance, which was quite intense, or not performance, it was actually a real ritual, um, I, I teamed up with musicians from that performance and asked them if they would want to do something that was just sound. Um, and I would give them structures of electronic things that I'd been working on and, and wondered if they could interpret them, if they could react to these electronic things. So we would have a dialogue between the rhythmic and dark music of Condomble and the very abstract, intense um, sounds of, of the electronics. And they were up for it. And we started this group, Black Manual, and there were a couple of performances. I think this one, I don't know where this one's from. Probably um, CTM Festival some years ago. And I, I also built these objects then, for which I like to put on record players. It was all about like blurring the idea of like the dark and and the the bright, like the concrete and the abstract and to blur the, the situation of where you are at, which I was also closely relating to this idea of Condomble, that um, it kind of confuses you so intensely that you actually suddenly connect to a different state of um, consciousness, a very physical state of consciousness. This is um, another thing I did. Uh, I did it in Amsterdam. Um, I was there between, I can't remember, actually 2005 or six and seven or eight, um, working as the artistic director for STEIM, an institute for electronic music. They develop interfaces. Um, they run a venue. They do research in electronic music, history, and future. Um, they help artists to invent actually tools, interfaces. Um, they create their own sampling software. It's very much based on performance. And when I became the artistic director, I, was, I, I wanted to kind of stare, stare this up and try to do something that isn't based on the visual, the physical um, attraction of something that is performed in real time, which was totally their dogma. Everything had to be real time. Every electronic tool had to be something you would do in the moment. And I said, look, I, I totally appreciate this approach, but to me the music becomes interesting um, in my mind. I, I want to hear it, you know, and I think a lot of what you're doing here is based on something that looks intense. <laughs> 
and thus also sounds intense, but um, does it, is it really that intense? Um, if someone's like really intensely doing like an improv set and he's like sweating and like tearing his clothes off, but then if you would hear the music without this, would it still translate all that? So I created a room where you wouldn't see any performance. It was really a purely electroacoustic space. Like a bit of the same idea, like the flickering between the white and the, the dark, um, the imaginative and the concrete. And I asked um, several um, composers, performers, to write pieces for this um, space. It was a 5.1 surround sound system. And the pieces were between 10 to 60 minutes. There was some... Um, Sterilab did a beautiful rearrangement, very long extended arrangement of one of their pieces, like it was nearly orchestral. It was beautiful. Um, Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth, he did a very intense like guitar burst piece. And for that little video, I used the soundtrack of something I did for it because um, simple reason, um, it's my music so I can do with it what I want and I can release a video of it. And I didn't want to make it complicated and chop up all the pieces, black dice, and ask, hey, can I have 10 seconds of your track? So it kind of now becomes a reality in its own way. It's like a, but I think you get a sense of the space, and hopefully you can imagine like other music than what you hear being played in that space. This is a better life here. So I'm, I'm very interested in actually in spaces and how um, sound um, works with a space, within a space, transforms a space, how a space actually transforms the sound, how the visual and the acoustic kind of work together or against each other. Um, this is a, a room that I built for Corner House Manchester. It's again a surround sound piece that had been played in that room as a loop and was a meditation room. Um, that was my idea, but a meditation room that actually isn't working properly. So um, I thought a real meditation is, is, is um, you have someone who, who guides you through the meditation. You, you always have like a soft voice that, that tells you like, okay, your arms are getting heavy, uh, blah, blah, you're walking uh, across a green field. And I mean, we all know what, it, what it's supposed to sound like. But, and, I, and I wanted, I, in a way, I really like meditation, but I hate that it always wants to do the same thing with you, make you super relaxed and, like, and the world around you kind of disappears. And I thought a meditation could be, should be really messy. It should like, bring up all the, the weird ideas and the weird thoughts you can't really have uh, in everyday life, or at least not when you cross the street because you have to arrange your everyday life. So I asked uh, Marky Smith, um, he's the singer, uh, the singer of, or he's like the, the man behind the band The Fall, rather like a punk, um, a punk related um, yeah, thing. <laughs> he's a poet, um, he's very anarchic, he's also Dadaistic, he has a weird sense of humor. And I said, Mark, I, I want to build this room and I need a guy who like, leads you through the meditation, would you be up for doing it? And he said, yeah, I can do that, that's no problem. So, 
So we build that room and then it's basically Mark's voice who gives you the meditation um, commands or exercise. Um, so there's a snippet of that. And the idea was also that um, um, it's, it's a reoccurring theme in, in, in let's say, my work. Or I'm, I'm always like coming back to this idea of acousmatic music, which is another term for electroacoustic music, electronic music, you could say. Um, the French came up with this idea that music you don't know the origin of, like something that has been taken away from its sound source and has been reworked, relates to the idea of um, Socrates um, teaching his students behind a wall, so um, with a light shining um, towards him, but the students would only see his, his um, shadow. So they wouldn't watch him being the teacher, they would watch they would understand his presence physically through the shadow, but they would have to make up their own mind from, from what they actually hear. So this idea of acousmatic um, is, is also kind of realized in that, in that room a bit. So this one, one wall was half transparent, so you would see the people outside of the room. <laughs> super exhausted myself from all that stuff. I don't know how you deal with it, but it's just all over the place. This is a composition I did for um, an Italian piazza. It's a, a place in Umbria called Foligno. They have a festival, um, experimental music festival, and they asked me to, to write a piece for them. And I said, I would like to use your, 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 your whole square. It's a beautiful square, so sound should come from everywhere and should extend to like from early morning until the evening. So we had all these sound events. Some were very sparse, some were more intense. They were like the two cafes of the piazza were supposed to play a sound loop. So it was kind of ambient music, kind of weird ambient music in, in the cafes. And then there was this lady doing the vibraphone and then there was a brass orchestra and a flute, flute ensemble uh, by kids. And um, so, but it, but it was raining heavily, so it, it half worked only because no one was at the piazza because of the heavy rain. <laughs>
Okay, so this is the last bit now. That's um, a sound installation I did for Museum Abteiberg, um, a German museum in Nordrhein-Westfalen, West Germany. And um, there was part of a show about Sigmar Polke, a very famous German painter, very, very prolific person, and um, also people around him. And so at the time, he always liked the band Can very much, um, German crowd rock group. And the singer of the band Can, um, Damo Suzuki, somehow also connected with Polka. I don't know, they asked Damo, so would you like, we would like to have you in the exhibition. Would you work, want to work with someone? Um, is there like, do you have a wish? And he said, I would really love to work with the guys from Mars on Mars. And, but he's, he was actually, he's, he's quite ill. Um, he had a few operations, so he's actually very weak. And his performances were always very intense, like um, very expressive. Um, he's using his voice, he's shouting, he's like very physical, half-naked and very excessive um, performances. So when I thought about um, him and the idea that we could do something together, but we couldn't do a concert, I was actually very, um, I, had, um, I was first very sad <laughs> because I'm, I'm really a fan of him. And then it took me a couple of weeks and I thought it would actually be beautiful if we did something, if we did something very subtle and then he would probably just speak and we wouldn't make music in the sense that we improvise together the way we, you improvise, like you play an instrument and make a jam, but I would just listen to what he says and then make music that really carefully kind of draws the same lines than, than his talking, basically. So I suggested this to the museum and to Damo, and, and they were all very happy, and he was very happy to do it because he hadn't been working with musicians for a long time, because everyone wants him to be ecstatic and physical, and he just didn't have the energy to do that. So what we did is, since he also comes from a visual arts background, we had like these several stations of two speakers. One was his voice telling a story, and one speaker was me reacting to his speech um, with sound, very minutely um, kind of screwed, attached to his rhythm of speaking. And then we would have those two speakers and rearrange them together. So we also made these arrangements. So Damo sometimes put his speaker into um, a potato bag or, he, or we were painting the speakers. So we had these different stations. People could switch them, could switch them on and off walking through the, through the show. <laughs> Das ist bei den meisten Leuten, die Eltern älter werden. So, immer Freundschaften in Freundschaften sind die Kleinen. Bei meinem Fall ist es gut. So. Okay. Okay, I, I understand that's a bit abstract. <laughs> if someone wants to explore that further, that would be also a radio piece for WDR. So um, I think in May um, this will be broadcasted as like a sound-only thing. And Damo's voice will be on the right speaker and my music will be on the left. So as a listener on the radio, you can adjust the, uh, the, the balance between the two performances yourself. Um, okay, and this is definitely the last bit now for, for that. It's um, a film by Rosa Barber, for who I make a lot of sound. She's a visual artist. She comes from film, but she does installation work, um, sculptures. She has a big show in Dresden right now at the Albertinum there. Um, and this is one of her movies, so um, that's something I 
don't really enjoy doing, but I really enjoy doing it for her because I have total freedom of how I work with the sound. Um, I can deal with um, voices as well. Like very, cl I, I, I work closely with her, like how you place a voice and over voice because in her movies, nothing's really synced. Those, those are not, not like, um, I'd say conventional narrative movies. They're always meant to be installation pieces. Uh, they're, they're also screened in like art house movies, uh, theaters, but um, it's obviously for an audience that kind of can deal with a non-narrative structure. So this, there's a little bit of um, film scoring here. about a society that's caught in this townhouse and they can't go outside anymore because it's kind of a post-apocalyptic situation. They're not even aware of there's an outside. It's this kind of post-industrial um, post world. Basically. And everything I did is, is re-scored. With film, you, you have it running and then at some point you think it's, it's actually not about the film, it's not about the image anymore. This is totally about the sound. And it kind of keeps flipping. Is it like a sound piece? Is it a composition? Is it still a movie? Is it still a narrative? I mean, this is taken from a long movie, and there is a narrative in there, but I like the different tempos it has. And I really like the end, where this one chord is just like a, you know, like a real rock end. It goes like, boom, but it's super low volume. It has this vastness. And yeah, for me, it's, it's a real pleasure to work with those, with those images. I've done music for. Um, kind of a, a real film, film, and it was actually a nightmare. What so, was the nightmare? Uh, the nightmare is that you always have to, <sighs> yeah, you just have to please, first you have to please the director and they're like super manic, and it was, a, it was a guy from Hollywood and he was in our studio and he was always like, meh, 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 imagine this, imagine that, imagine that, imagine that. it should be like this, it should be like this, it should be like this, and we were like, yeah, can, can we try something first? And then you think, and. He was all over the place, and then we did all that work and finished this thing. It was a really intense lot of work, and then his movie totally flopped, basically. So the production company didn't like the movie. And that's a warning for everyone who's interested in film music. Um, the easiest thing you can do when you've spent millions of dollars or euro or whatever in to a, on a movie, and it's, and it's not working, the easiest thing is to change the sound. So what they did is basically it just took off all the soundtrack, made a super cheesy sound soundtrack. The film still didn't work, but um, and it was still a flop. But but at least they ha they did something about the disaster mm -hmm. that this director had created. So um, total warning. And I talked to other people who score movies, and they said the same. Some are very lucky, and they have a lot of freedom. They find really good directors to work with. Um, I'm happy to be able to work with Rosa Baba. And I feel very comfortable in the visual arts. Um, yeah, but it's probably just my, my situation, maybe. Maybe other people have more luck with scoring. You've, you've shown a lot of various different collaborations here. But what would you say is, is there a secret to a successful collaboration for you? Yeah, you just have to listen to the other one. I mean, really, you have, to be, you have to have an interest in the other person or in the other group or in whatever it is, talent or the knowledge of the thing you collaborate with. 
and I think that it should should be okay. I mean, and is listening alone enough for uh, a career like twenty five years of Mouse on Mars? I think um, uh, what I tried to say, like explain before, I think listening is like a metaphor. It's 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 you, it's it's a, it's an interest you have and. And since we have so many senses radiating all the time, um, you understand that you're better with certain senses um, than with others. So some are really good in playing football, others are much better in like a fighting sport or like boxing, or some are better with, with chess. I don't know if it's just a sport, maybe it is. I think, yeah. Um, so you have to find out what, what's right with you. And for me, I understand that listening is the metaphor I can work best with. I wanted to become a visual artist when I was still at school. I already made music, but I thought I would go into the visual field. And I learned that it wasn't my strength. It wasn't where I felt really, I, I, I felt I didn't, like with everything visual, I always felt there was an end. I did something, uh, it was done, and I have to do the next thing. The visual sense to me is very um, dead end. And the idea of listening to me is that it, it is kind of infinite, it's endless. It's like a journey and it never stops. But you so can decide when to slow it down or when to have a You found break. that decision by listening to yourself, basically. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah. Well, is that, is that part of that listening? I didn't have a revelation. It, it just happened. Yeah, it just happened. Um, no, I'm, 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 I'm not like... Yesterday we ca came back from this um, tour, like this project that we had in Freiburg where we show, presented a new Mars Mars set. I did this audio play. We drove back to Berlin, eight hours drive. And the person who wrote the, the, the text, the story of the Hörspiel I did, a good friend, Thomas Knöffel, he's always full of stories. He's very much into the occult, um, not necessarily esoteric, but he's very interested in everything that hasn't, doesn't have a clear scientific explanation. He said, um, I mean, this guy, he was a, a doctor. He always has stories. He meets incredible people. Uh, and this guy, um, he became a drummer eventually. Uh, he's a great musician. He's a great musician. But he, his story is so weird how he became a drummer. He walked in the woods with his, with his dog when he was like in his early 20s. And suddenly the dog lay down on the floor in the middle of the woods. And the guy doesn't understand what's, what's happening and with the dog, basically. He stops as well. And he looks up and he sees a huge deer standing right in front of him. I don't know how you call the horn of the deer. Mm. And an antler? Yeah, antlers. Antlers. But antlers are the, the animals or these, these things? Oh, no, the, the yeah, yeah, huge antlers. And he looks, he looks at the deer and the deer looks at him. He said, and suddenly something really hits him. It hits him right in the center of his body. And, and he couldn't, he didn't understand what was happening. And the only thing he knew, that he had to completely change his life after that happened. And um, when I said to Thomas, okay, to me it sounds like he got hit by a bullet from some hunter, you know, like randomly. Um, that would be my explanation. I never had something like that. I would think if that would happen to me, like someone accidentally shot me in the back or something. He didn't know. He said, no, it was not like that. It was a real esoteric experience. Um, can happen, obviously, but didn't didn't happen to me. One more thing I'd really like to cover is, as, as there's a lot of electronic music producers here, the, nowadays, or ever since there's electronic music, I think there was always that 
that that gap between making music and performing it. Mm -hmm. And now we I hear a lot of people having difficulties with producing music at home, but then how how do you actually get it on stage? Mm -hmm. How how do you make it presentable? And I think with Mouse on Mars, you've you've found the way of of making it very presentable and very playful. Mm. Could we have a, an insight into how that happened? You, you, now you're a three-piece on stage. It wasn't always like that. The drummer was introduced. In no, he was, he was with us since the very, very oh, beginning. Oh, since the beginning. Mm -hmm. All right. We later developed a two-piece, actually. Oh, ah, okay. Mm. Um, would you, is there any recommendations that yeah. you would give or anything that when, when you're an electronic music producer, you can make crazy tracks, crazy soundscapes, you can do, do basically do whatever you want, but then take that to stage as a performance? Mm -hmm. um, okay, there's like lots of levels to this. Some people are natural born performers and they know how to handle a space. And I think that's the first thing, like not being afraid of a space and understanding that your music is different music in whatever space you hear it and in whatever space it gets played. But then on top of that, it's not only like playing back something that you've produced for yourself and that you find very likable and then you play it to more people. You have to reinvent it. Um, you have to really catch the idea behind it again and <coughs> I'd say nearly be able to reconstruct the whole thing without the original tools, even maybe without the original sounds. So okay. you have to be able to kind of take it all apart and rebuild it again. On top of like understanding that you have to, you have to use the space as, as like an extension of your, see like an instrument in its own right. And then I think the next step or maybe the step after the next step is that eventually there'll be people in this space. But if you really believe in what you do, if you really enjoy this, I mean, no matter how you enjoy your thing, you can enjoy something that's very painful to yourself or you can enjoy being like just completely rigid and not move at all or you, or you enjoy dancing and shouting and getting naked on stage. There's no judgment there. But if you really, if you're true, truly into what you're doing, that will hit that will translate to the audience. It, it will always do. So first, be, be sure about like, the situation you're in. Don't think you have to please anyone. Don't think about anyone else. Just think about like, your idea and how you can make it unfold in a bigger space. And the rest will come just by itself. That's it. So how, how did Mouse on Mars manage? How, what, what, is, what is your setup? Okay, the story of Mouse and Mars was we were working in the studio um, and we just made sounds and we didn't even think about tracks or what that would become in the end. We always loved records. We were really, really into records and listening to records, full-length LP type things. And we developed all these ideas and things and eventually it became a tape and the tape traveled around. Like um, We found a label eventually um, the label asked us, hey, um, we'd love to bring that, like, release your record. We, we, you have to play a show. And I was totally shocked by that. Really, I was not at all ready to do this. And he was much more relaxed about it. Um, he said, sure, we can play. 
I mean, don't don't be afraid of it or like think it it wouldn't be it would be a different thing. Just be yourself and I don't I don't want to do it. I, I think this is a record. L let it go its own way. And he said exactly. You know, just let us do something else on stage. No one can tell us how we should play. And then I was like, okay, okay, cool, yeah, that's right, that's right. And actually, and I said, I don't want to be seen. He said, you don't have to be seen, you just stay on the floor because I played, had been playing things before, in, rather in clubs, in more experimental contexts. And Mars Mars, it was quite clear from the beginning, it, it would become a bigger thing. It would become something that would, be, like, would draw a few more people than the things I had been doing before. Um, and so I was really afraid of that. So any... So just like stay on the floor like you always do and I had all my gadgets, I was playing a radio, I had a guitar that I played with a vibrator like to have this magnetic feel that makes the, the strings resonate and then run that through a pitch transposer and I had a few tapes and I had a keyboard and all these things so I put them all on the floor around me and then Andy said that we definitely need rhythm. So our music is, 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 is driven, I mean has rhythm all the time, rhythm is the structure that we both communicate on in a way. So we need someone who can drum. And the first show we played was in London. Our label at that time was in London, to Pure. And so we asked around and like if there was a, a drummer somewhere in London. And then Andy was like, wait, I actually do know a friend from Dusseldorf who moved to London. He's actually not a drummer, but he's a great musician. He's a singer and guitarist. So we, he called up Dodo and said, look, we have this gig, um, we have a record deal, um, we, we, we'll play this show in London. And he's doing, oh, Andy, yeah, I still remember you from Dusseldorf. Yeah, yeah, okay, I can, what do you need? Uh, just something, whatever, what do you have? Uh, I only have two congas. Um, yeah, just bring them. And we rented a, a drum kit, and then we had a rehearsal in London for three days and told Dodo what we think the music should be like. And he just did it. And then we got an engineer. And Tupio asked us, what kind of engineer would you like to have? And we said, someone who's good with dub. We want someone who can really do like Adrian Sherwoody, low bass, dubby things. And I said, yeah, we, we know a guy. And then he came and we met him for soundcheck the first time. I think he came once to the rehearsal space. And, and we played the first time ever in London on a stage. And it, it worked super, super well because we, did what we wanted, we, and, 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 and at that time also the label supported that, that was good. They said like, do your thing, but, but please play live, because it's super essential if you want to do another record. <laughs> I wasn't even sure if I wanted to do another record, but it, it worked out well and I, I got into it. So these days it's much more professional, I'm not on the floor anymore. Um, no more vibrators, it's kids-friendly performances. What has changed since then? I mean, the world of software has just so drastically taken over and we really embrace it. It has always been a dream. I mean, I grew up with digital technology and since I had my first Sinclair cheapo personal computer, like the small thing or like <coughs> friends had an Amiga or like a Commodore, since then it just like blasted. The first sample I had was like a little Casio with like two seconds sampling time and it was sounded horrible and next sample you had to erase it so you played it into a tape recorder and then next one, all the kind of shit you heard that a million times like all these old guys who talk about sampling and you think of, but for me a computer is still a sampler. Mm -hmm. It's still a sampler that stores like 
two days of sound. But the way I think of what I recorded is still, I've, I still think it's, it's in my sampler now. And I'm super amazed that I have so much sampling time. <laughs> so for you, there is no preference of life, even uh, of, of, of analog gear or digital gear? Or, what, or what, what's the best of both worlds for you? I mean, I like the immediacy, and um, analog gear is, is nice because it's limited, so it kind of triggers your imagination in a different way, and uh, the limitations make it immediately have a certain personality. But you can do that with every piece of software as well. And every piece of software has a little thing where it's behaving weirdly, and it has its limitations as well. And this is what I always find very appealing, to, to immediately like find out where's the limitation of that thing, and what is it really good at, and what is it actually not very good at and um, and that can be very charming to find out what it's not good at and then software these days I mean everything is so immediate and so fast and so iterative I really enjoy it like when we play live these days you can just switch your whole set for from song from one song to another you have a new palette of sounds or even instruments one thing is a sampler next song you have rather like a palette of synthesizers one's more like an effect driven thing then it's it's fantastic Things are sometimes a bit fragile, like you have to really find out what's wrong about it, um, be, be a bit more logical and precise about your where the problem is, because it's not obvious, it's not visible. At the same time, when a synthesizer broke on stage in the old days, it was a drama. You had to find a music store and you had to find exactly the best guy in town that like the music store knows of and then rush to his place and make him repair it and it was... So I'd say like software is even even more um, handleable, more more casual than analog gear. I, I really I think for me it's a logical progression. Everything was was totally going like for into the direction like one day you'll have everything as software and it's great because it's still a translation of ideas. For me, it's not having a specific tool and then thinking oh this is a a cog, and a cog sounds like that, and the MOOC sounds like that, and the Pro 5 sounds like that, and whatever, the 808, and I want exactly that sound. It's not what I'm interested in at all. Um, I, I want to kind of have this dialogue with the gear, and I want to kind of transcend it. I want to get over this initial sound, like the preset that's given to you when you start a synthesizer for the first time. That's always the challenge, like to find something that's behind that, that what this thing's already made for, what's already giving you. And it's getting harder because more and more synthesizers, software tools and software synthesizers or whatever software devices are super creative. I mean, really interesting people program them and they do really weird <coughs> things. And there's so many amazing reactor patches that are just weird and you really don't understand what they're good for. <laughs> but you understand someone put a lot of effort into making them and so you want to explore that a bit and it's really h harder, it's much harder these days to find bad sounds because there's of course tons of them but there's so many good stuff that you mean it turn away from them. And I mean really like the first synthesizers I used they all sounded so bad and I never wanted to be a keyboard player because they were always the most boring guys in the band <laughs> playing the most horrible sounds. Mm. I always wanted to be a guitarist. I come from drumming, but I wanted to be a guitarist. Now, I, I wanted to ask you the question, if you, if you would, now with your experience and the career you've had so far, 
if you look back at when you started out, if there would be anything that you would make different. But I, I think it, I'd, I'd rather like to transform that question and ask if, if, if you were to start out now, if you were a young producer interested in creating music, creating your own music, working with others, what would you, what do you think is important nowadays? How would you start out now? What, what would you tell them? I would never subscribe to an engineering or music school. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why? It's just, just a huge distraction. I mean, you listen to guys like me. Why, why would you? Why would you do that? I'm just like ruining all your fantasy and all your ideas. And how how come you're ruining it? <laughs> because there might be something. Even if like it's two hours of bullshit, there might be something that sticks in your mind, and you go like, and you think about that. You should you should just deal with things that have nothing to do with music, and just go out there and be young and be wild and be totally respectless and be totally irresponsible and really give a shit about anything. You don't have to pay your rent or you just live in some friend's place, you know. You don't have to pay for your car or your mortgage and you don't have to like take your kid to school. If you do, you can still do it when you're young and have a, a weird life. It's totally okay. You definitely have to take the time of being irresponsible. It's, it's super important. And don't explain to anyone what you're doing. Like if you're in a music school and um, yeah, and you deal with people like me, they'll ask you, so why did you do that? I mean, what's this about? Like, why is that so long? Do you know that, like, Terry Riley did that in 1962 already? Have you ever heard of the tape delay? <laughs> why would you do that? You, you have to think that everything is new and there's this, the world is a white screen and you just piss all over it and it's a genius thing. But you that. had an ed education, right? Uh, well, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. I finished school and then I subscribed to the university, but I didn't really, I didn't really go there um, because I was lucky. Because you pissed all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was, I was so fascinated by making sound. Um, it just, it just was stronger than everything else. I still have a hard time reading. I'm, I'm very much into reading, but um, at the end of the day, I'm back at my computer making music. It's total obsession. Um, I don't know if it's so good, but that would be my advice um, to the young people, since you ask me. I could also say, like, yes, read and learn as much as you can and digest everything that, that there is. And like, is, For me, like, um, in the early 90s, when we um, started this collective called Armusik, which is a record shop, and it was—it's a distribution thing for like artist records, very small edition, experimental things. It was three guys: it was Georg Odeik, who had Armusik at that time still at his um, kids' room in his um, in his parents' house, and Markus Schmickler, who's a very renowned composer and producer, and who also still lived with his parents. I had moved to Cologne. I had um, a home, but it was too big. I had to move out, and I was looking for a space. So we all moved together, and then, and I had been subscribed to the university. When I moved together with those guys, I had no time to study anymore. There was like the whole record collection of Georg Udaik, like this whole repertoire of intense music. 
then Markus Schmickler brought all that, that he, he was studying at the music school. Um, he was a real composer. So he brought all that stuff. I learned about Stockhausen and all the electroacoustic um, school, GRM group, Recherche Musicale, like Jean, um, Francois Bale and uh, uh, Parmigiani and Luc Ferrain, all these things. And um, Morton Feldman and the whole history of 20th century music. And then the record shop was full with like Merzbau and hardcore noise stuff. And um, then techno came in, all the bunker records, all the kind of like obscure things. And then I had started producing music, so I connected with other people. I had no time to do anything but making music. And I wish for everyone to have the same experience. But that would be my advice. You know. But still, if you've done that step and you are at this school now, just use it as, as much as you can, you know, like just go and produce and give a shit and don't hold back and just like play to other people. And don't be shy and don't wait. I've seen so many people around me never releasing anything because they weren't ready. They thought it's not good enough. Um, now I have to do this and that before, before I can actually play it to someone. And they never released anything. And you learn by that. You have to get rid of your stuff. And you have to play live to understand if you're a good performer or not. You can't rehearse being a good performer. No. All right. Well, that that basically sums it up for me, I think. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to open this to the questions and answers now. Are there, yes. are there any? Just on this thing you just said, how would you react if in the past you would have realized that you were not a good performer, like that you didn't enjoy performing? Like, so you love producing and it sounds stay on the floor, but then you get on stage and like, uh, mm. not for me. Like, it, it was actually a little bit like that in the beginning. I, I, I still wasn't sure if I really wanted to do it, but I had this very strong partner, Andy Toma, in, in the band, who just like had all this enthusiasm. And then Dodo on drums, and they, they were just, they're such amazing musicians. And they said, you, you're a great musician. It's just, I mean, if, even if you, if you reject that, you're a great musician in what you're doing. And, and they gave me all the confidence. And I realized, okay, my objection was also like not being certain if, if, I, would be, if I would be right in that, in that context. And now I've played with lots of different musicians and I'm not shy anymore about like not playing an instrument properly or not even having like a, a real stage presence. I'm usually quite looking down and having that. But that has a thing. I had this project with Marcus Pop, um, Oval. He does this group Oval. Um, you should definitely have him here as well. Very um, skilled and intelligent person. And we had this group, Microstoria, and it's just like these two blokes sitting there staring into their computers and it was the beginning of laptop music. We, the first concerts we did, we still had to bring a whole computer on stage because there wasn't a laptop that could like host all the sounds. And, but this is what we did and we, we would just like backed each other up. So okay, this is how we can, this is how we do it, no? And so we had, we had our gigs and um, we learned that it was okay to do it this way. People enjoyed the concerts and uh, so that gives you confidence. As I said, you don't, you don't have to make all these decisions. You know? um, but if you feel you just don't want to do it, then don't do it. There's a German um, musician and composer, Asmus Tietjens. He's, um, I think he's in his 70s now. He's a, like one of the, the early pioneers of German, let's say, in, industrial experimental music. 
he came from crowd rock, he played in a few crowd rock bands, and he very early realized he doesn't like to be on stage, he doesn't like to be a performer. So he, he prefers to be in a studio and work with the sounds and mold them and shape them and then put everything on a dot tape. So people ask him, kept asking him, please, Mr. Titians, can you come and play our festival? Can you, we have this place for experimental music and we all love your stuff. Could you please come and, and perform? And he said, I have nothing to perform. Eventually he came and said, okay, I'll come. Um, what he did for a long time, he's um, just brought a dot tape and he put it into the dot player and pressed play. And then he sat there and listened to his own music on stage. <laughs> and, and the people enjoyed it. <laughs> they enjoyed seeing him, his attention and, and the intensity of listening to his own sounds. And it actually, it, it can transform a whole space. It's, it's, it's intense and it was not pretentious at all. It's really my, 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 my real advice is don't, be, don't pretend. Don't be someone else or something else. Don't think about what people want you to be. That would be my advice. So, yeah. I don't know if it helped you with the question. Don't you think that subscribing to an, uh, like a school environment, this kind of thing, is a catalyst for uh, inspiration itself and productivity and creativity? Because then you're surrounded by just the energy and integrity of a lot of people that are trying to achieve something, you know? Um, yeah. And in your own yeah. time, again, you can still piss on the <laughs> in your own time you can still you can still yeah you can do it in a big group even life, of course yeah I mean I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm also not very straight about this because I'm here with you now and, I'm, and I started doing more teaching and, and I actually really enjoy being with like students or, or younger people or older people who have questions or have a thing you know and that's like something that um is not fair to just dismiss. Um, if you have a question, if you if you're on a if you're on a quest, and um, and you have to go to certain places to learn about your your thing, you have to do that. So um, if you have to go to an academy, if you have to go to a library, if you have to see certain people like certain composers you really admire and they're still alive, go and talk to them. Um, if you have technical questions. Ask, ask the producers or go and read, go on a forum or like watch the YouTube clips. Of course, yeah, you have to do all that. And in that sense, an academy is, is, a, is a very condensed and, and good place where these things come together. Um, but I would say like life in itself is an academy. As I said, like there's no reason if you have, if you don't have something that's life-threatening in your neck there's no reason to not think that the whole world is an academy. You can just go straight into everything and you can, you can even see a big band perform and you wait until they, they're back on stage and wind up their cables and then you go and ask them a few questions. And if, if your questions are good, they'll, they'll all talk to you. I mean, unless they're like weird, but most, mostly they're, they're not. <laughs> How motivated do you think in relation to produce and learn new music are you in relation to when you were 20? Or how is your motivation towards music and learning and producing sounds in relation to when you were younger? Um, 
I was, uh, I think I'm much more ready to learn things now than I was when I was young. Uh, when, I, when I was young, I was very busy, actually. Um, no, I, w I wasn't a good student when I was young. I think I'm much, a much better student now, uh, if, if that helps. Um, the thing is, if, you, if you're really interested in something, you have to achieve whatever. Like, you need to f finish a composition, or you have a gig, um, and you're under pressure. You don't even know how much you learn while you do it, or while you're in that mind frame. It's just like you eat it all up. You don't even realize. When you learn in a way that you think, first you have to learn everything, and then you can make a decision what of what you learned you realize into something real, that also never stops, of course. So, and, and I really admire theorists, I have to say. I think I'm still kind of, I know which side I'm on, <laughs> because I'm totally like frantically making things all the time. But deep inside, I, I want to stop making things. And I want to just think about them or think them, you know, be able to write them down. Or people like John Cage were amazing. They, they, they were conceptual and conceptual artists or philosophers, like poets. Um, and, and they still wrote amazing music. I mean, Morton Feldman, he's like a, he's a, he's a mathematician and a poet, and his music is so beautiful, amazing. But he wouldn't have to do music. It would still be the same mind. And John Cage, I, I mean, I always admire, like, who's the guy from KLF who at some point stopped making music, said, I'm, I'm going into visual arts or, like, conceptual art. I think that's pretty amazing. One of the, the people I learned most from in my life, and I'm very lucky to be, to be able to, to know the, the person, um, and then he became a friend, is Oswald Wiener. He's in his, um, yeah, he's, I think he's, he turned 80 now. He came from the visual arts, but um, was always like a, a more like a thinker, I'd say, philosopher. He was from this very extreme group of artists in Vienna in the 60s who really tried to like fight against the establishment and really like turn art upside down and did very extreme performances. Uh, very radical things, also politically not always correct. And he was kind of like the, the mastermind a little bit like the and he turned more and more into like being interested into mathematics and um, and science, and then eventually he started mathematics, and he even became um, um, what was he like? I think he became a manager in Olivetti, and like totally turned away from from the arts. And now his his book, which I really recommend, although it's in German, uh, will be published by Surkamp, which is about um, the consciousness, or basically the idea of like how we can watch ourselves thinking, how we can like, follow certain processes of how our mind works out certain things, creative things, problems. There are certain techniques of um, so-called self-observation. Um, and it's, it's quite complicated. It deals a lot with mathematics and um, Turing, um, artificial intelligence. It's, it's very intense. And he came from the arts, and he stopped making artworks. And actually, he was teaching at the Art Academy in Dusseldorf a class in theory, um, theory, philosophy, I think, something, <coughs> but connected to the Visual Arts um, Academy, Dusseldorf. And I, I came to see his lectures and became friends with him. 
and some of his students who are also still friends actually turned away from arts and, <laughs> and went into science. And uh, one, she, she became a biologist. Um, one, I think, is uh, into artificial intelligence now. And the others, I think, like a writer or something. And those were the students who still are with him. I think he hardly sees any of his, like, painter, artist students anymore. Because those, eventually, they all turned away again and said, like, OK, I, I have enough of you. I, I have to do my stuff now, you know? This is too extreme. Or, like, you know, it takes me too far into the world of thinking. That's, like, for me, another reason why yeah, studying can be dangerous, I think, <laughs> for your art, which is good. You have to seek danger. <laughs> Working can be dangerous for your art. As, as well? Oh, you mean like having a day job? Something else that's not music. In one way, yeah. it's good to take a couple of days and then come back because you have a refreshed approach. But on the other hand, it just takes up a lot of time and energy, yes, which you could true. be using creatively. And there is also like this snowball theory that the more you're working on music, the uh, the more, the easier it is to get your flow anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely true. Yeah, sure. I mean, what what do you do when you have a day job? You think about music. I mean, then you make your job. Only if badly. your job is really monotonous and yes. you can allow this yeah. capacity. But yeah. if you have a demanding job, you can't. Yeah. So basically, everyone should quit their jobs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You should really all rent one space. Have a tiny bit of space to live in, but then be be able to constantly work. And we should all get in a squad. Yes, you should definitely run a squad, and then like just like every day someone cooks, or like those people who can cook do it. So you have yeah, that's very allocate, important. Like we create a new colony and allocate purposes for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think also they find themselves yeah. also like the things you're really good at. Like for instance, <coughs> when you're a band and you're on tour, um, it's 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 really interesting how um, how everyone very quickly finds their task, like what they're really good at. Finding a good coffee in the city, you know. Others like know where, where to find the good products, like they come back with fresh tomato and cheese. And, and then the others already start like setting up, doing like talking to the sound engineer, like checking the lights. And it's like this kind of weirdly connected org organism. Like uh, a hive. Hmm? Like a hive. Yeah, yeah, yes, naturally organized hive. <laughs> All right. Sorry, what was the book called again? Um, I can tell you the publisher, yeah. Surkamp, it's Edition Surkamp, S-U-H-R-K-A-M-P, and the author is Oswald, and the second name is Wiener, W-I-E-R-N-E-R. -E cool, You're welcome. And you had a question, right? Yeah, yeah, it was actually about day jobs, too. Did you, did you have to have a day job at any point of your career? Like a day off? A day job. A job, a day job. Yeah, like just um, for, for paying the rent. Or yeah. did you ever have to produce really shitty music for advertisements? The good thing is I can't do it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I can produce shitty music, but I can't do shitty music that works in an advertisement. <laughs> um, I've been trying and it um, just doesn't work. So that, that's good, in a way. It limits my possibilities. Um, I did have a day job, actually, when I was very, very young, because in Germany there was like this whole idea of private media was coming up. And um, 
during my studies, I had like an internship in a TV station in Cologne, and then and and I ended up in this music department because I was the only one who could speak English okay, and then I ended up being in this music program of that of that TV station, and they paid me really good money, and then I, I carried on like doing visual work and ended up in the art direction of another TV station and developed like the new kind of design for that station. It was a weird time, like uh, uh, I was 20 or something and um, I don't know how it happened. They it, it just let me do all that and I did like sound design and visual um, stuff as well. And then eventually it became a monotonous and actually not very rewarding work because what I did was still fun but then the content, like actually the actual shows, they didn't work out that well. Um, I couldn't identify with the program, so I asked uh, my boss to um, to fire me, which meant in Germany at that time, it would still mean you would get unemployment money based on the actual income you had before you were unemployed for quite a long time. So um, I really, really enjoyed the time of being unemployed. <laughs> and I was only working on sound at that time, being at home and having a good life and being quite uh, spaced out actually and um, but it was only like for a certain amount of time because then this mouse mouse thing was just like taking me out of that and took me to <laughs> took me into the world again I think you have to be a bit lucky I mean um, so you, you didn't have to worry about 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 getting getting money after Mars uh, after your band took off or my band still goes. Yeah, and, and uh, you didn't have to think about money on the side. Yeah, you always have to think about money. It's, it's, it's really tough, actually. It goes like this, goes like that. And in a way, I don't know. Worst thing would be um, not to be able to, like, you know, to be handicapped somehow. That's what I'm really, really afraid of. I mean, not that it, it's a fear that I have. I'm not phobic of like becoming ill or handicapped or something. But that would be the only thing that would like, you know, my brain would slow down. That would be bad. Everything else, you always manage it. it really, I, I seriously mean that. It's 100% like if you don't have a life-threatening situation that you live in and that affects you and your family and your friends, you, there's, n there's no reason for you not to go for your ideas. It's just it's it's your it's your obligation, yeah. and and I, and I think our society is still still able able to provide us with that. And, and same thing, if we would connect, um, I think it's it's very important these days. I know we're like it's very much based on the individual and the single. We know exactly what we need, and we have apps that actually. Um, optimize our workflow and our daily life routine, but we should really, really be in groups. We should always be together. I've always lived in groups of people. Like I've been in groups making music. I lived in like uh, squad or com com community type situations. Um, our music was a collective. That's I think that is really, really important. You can always get a backup somehow and. Uh, and if you don't have money, then someone just gives you a bit of their soup or something, you know, it's a way. And as a musician, I think you're all very, very lucky because musicians are usually very well treated in the world. People love musicians. And we've been traveling the world and wherever we went, uh, people asked us, oh, where are you from? Yeah, blah, blah. And uh, what do you do? Oh, musicians. Ah, oh, you musicians. Ah, oh, you musicians. <laughs> 
You get some food, you get a free cab ride, uh, you get a place to stay, you get whatever. It's, it's always good. So in that, that sense, it's good to be a musician, I think. Don't say you're a producer, okay? <laughs> Just an old man. It's better to be a musician than a producer. Well, in that spirit, thank you very much, Cameron. <laughs>